Well, Father, some of us are aware that uh, this afternoon that the stock market dropped again. Hasn't been this low in a long time, and that affects a lot of us. We're seeing all of this uh, turmoil. But you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. You're steady. You're there. So we're okay. It's, uh, it's, it's, good to, uh, it's good to get here on Wednesday nights and get with some guys who are serious about you and serious about your word and serious about what you have to say because really, Lord, what you have to say is all that matters. We'll spend a lot of time uh, listening to news or radio or uh, checking out different sites on the web and getting information and opinions, blogs. But, but really, all that matters is what you have to say. And when we get right about what you have to say, then we calm down and our perspective changes and the anxiety level drops dramatically and we regain perspective, and we were reminded that everything is under control. We are grateful that uh, you have worked in our lives in, in such a way that we would be here on a Wednesday night to study the Bible. That doesn't come naturally to any of us. We don't start out interested in you or in your word but your spirit works, and you work providentially, and you work circumstantially, and with some of us, you work in our lives uh, early, others, you work late, but you work, and you bring us to know you, and you open our eyes, and we can see things that we couldn't see before, and so we thank you for truth, and we thank you that you tell us uh, about what's real, and you tell us about things we can't see, but are as real, if not more real, than the things we can't see. We thank you, Lord, for these uh, different ministries that were mentioned tonight. We thank you for Joe White and what he's doing with men around the country. We're, we're really thrilled about that, and, and the emphasis on making disciples. We're, we're thankful for Crown and for all the people they've helped financially get their houses in order. And, and it's just amazing. And Sixto is right. When, when we get our houses in order, a lot of stress. When we just listen to you and follow your principles, a lot of things just fall into place. And then what Bill's doing, what with his ministry, what Colson's doing with Prison Fellowship, uh, there's hopelessness there, Lord. And it is frightening the first time to go in and share our faith and go into a situation where we're not comfortable. But I pray that you might put that in the hearts of some, some guys. I talked to a lady this week right there at the mechanic's waiting room. And she was a part of that this last weekend. First time she said it scared her to death and scared her husband to death. But they were going back for their second or third time. 
So for some of us, Lord, that's where we need to be. We need to get out there. And you're calling us to do that. We're all in different places, but we're all facing the giants. So tonight, Lord, would you once again uh, put another brick or two in our biblical foundation so that we would stand firm, that we would not be knocked off our feet, that our faith would grow, that our trust would be stronger, and that our security in you would be more rock solid than it's ever been. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been studying the giants, all based on Numbers 13. Joshua and Caleb were part of the... uh, crew of 12 who were chosen to go into the land and check out the land and come back 40 days later and give a report. And the report that was given was it's a great land, but there are giants in the land. Joshua and Caleb said, God will help us fight the giants and we'll have victory over the giants. The other 10 guys made the classic statement, we are not able. And as a result, we don't know their names. They left no productivity. They left no legacy. In fact, they were wiped out by a plague, and God just went ahead and took their lives because they were leaders. And they knew better, and they had seen God's power at work, but they refused to apply what they had seen. They refused to take the truth and apply it to their lives. And the the principle has been, if if you're going to be used by God, uh, no matter where you are in life, no matter if you're in your 20s or your 30s or your 40s, all the way up 60s, 70s, 80s, no matter where you are, you're going to have to fight the giants. We're always fighting the giants. I was walking in tonight, met Anthony, and we're coming in, and he said, I missed last week. He said, are you still talking about the giants? And I said, yeah, because they're still out there. And isn't that true? They're still out there. The giants you're probably fighting right now, uh, perhaps are not the giants you fought uh, five years ago, or, or 10 years ago, or 20 years ago. Giants come and go. But the pressure is the same. Uh, The intimidation factor is the same. The worry and the stress are the same. Um, They just keep coming because we in the Christian world and in the Christian faith, if you're serious about following Christ, we're living from faith to faith, which means you're going to live from giant to giant. Now, we've been talking about different giants that we encounter in the Christian life, and The one that we're going to touch on tonight is one that I've alluded to before in this study, but but I'm going to really try and drive it home tonight, and that is the giant of the worst possible time. That's a huge giant. Things can happen. Not only do giants come along, but giants have a way of coming along at the worst possible time. We have some friends in another state, and uh, Mary and I have been on the phone with them this uh, past several days because they have a teenage son who has basically become incorrigible. He is absolutely out of control, uh, will not yield, will not be disciplined. He is creating havoc and chaos in the home, and 
they're just, they're besides themselves, they're worn out, they're exhausted, they've got other kids that he's influencing. It's just absolute chaos. Now, was that a giant they were fighting a year ago? No, but they're fighting it now. Is that a giant you're fighting? Probably not. You say, oh, I fought that giant 20 years ago, and I'm glad that one's over. It's, 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 that's the giant they're facing, and they're at their wit's end right now. Uh, but I, I would say this, we could, go, we, we could go along every row and ask every guy, are you fighting a giant? And I, I think it's probably safe to say every guy that's in here tonight is fighting some kind of giant. They're different. It's different than the guy next to you or the guy behind you or the guy up there in the bleachers, but everybody's fighting some kind of giant. Um, now, when you fight the giants... You have to think. You have to think. Uh, I, I've been trying to pound this uh, throughout the fall about the importance of thinking in the Christian life. And when we get back in January, Lord willing, I'm probably going to pound it again because so much of the Christian life is thinking. So much of the Christian life is thinking correctly because when these giants come, and when these giants show up, and when the doctor tells you that you've got six months to live, or when your wife says, uh, I'm, I'm leaving, I don't love you, uh, when uh, you find out that your job will no longer be there in two weeks, when, when these giants come and hit us, they, they stun us and they shock us and we're not ready for them and we're trying to get our equilibrium and we're trying to handle them. How do you handle a giant? Well, of course you're going to be stunned and shocked when, when a giant shows up for the first time. How do, you, how do you get your feet under you? Well, it all goes back, it all goes back to thinking about first principles. And what are the first principles? The first principles is, if you're a Christian, is that I have a father. And who is my father? What is he like? What is his character? Uh, Psalm 103 says that our God has established his throne in the heavens. And his sovereignty rules over all. And if you've been here throughout this study, you're saying, you know, Steve, you've said this a hundred times. I'm glad you're listening. Because you know what? We can never say it enough. Our God has established his throne in the heavens. Can I ask you something? Who sits on a throne? This isn't an SAT exam. It's just real simple. The person who sits on a throne is usually called a king. So he's the king. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. Our, our God has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. What is sovereignty? Sovereignty is his control. Whenever I go out and do conferences and I teach on the sovereignty of God, uh, usually I come home and within 48 hours I got a couple emails. Uh, Steve, I was in uh, San Diego this weekend and I heard you talk about God is in control and God is sovereign. And I believe that and I agree with that, but... Okay, here we go. Yeah, do I think God's in control? Yeah. Do I think God's sovereign? Yeah. Uh, but... But nothing. There are no buts when it comes to God's sovereign and God's in control. Yeah, but you see, I, I... 
Well, I think that, you know, quite frankly, I don't care what you think. As, as you don't, you shouldn't care what I think, right? What matters is what God says about himself. Well, here's my opinion. Who cares? Who cares what your opinion is on this? Or who, and, and, and let me get it both way. Who cares what my opinion is? Well, I care deeply about my opinion. <laughs> and you care deeply about yours. But really, in the final analysis, guys, does it matter what we think or does it matter what our opinion is? You've got to take your opinion and match it to what God says. You've got to take what you think and match it to what God says. And the Bible says that God is sovereign. God is in control, and there are no buts to the control of God in the world. But you say, but Steve, I have a will. Yes, you do. You have a will, and you make choices, and they're important, and your choices count, and, you're, and, 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 and you make them of your own volition. You, you say, well, I don't know how that works, because I have a will, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I've got a will. And your will is real. And so you need to make wise choices. You make bad choices, there are bad consequences. Guys who tend to be in prisons, generally speaking, have made bad choices, and therefore there are bad consequences, generally speaking. Okay? That's the way it works in life. I remember when John was about three years old, and um, there was a knock at the door, and uh, there was a police officer. And Mary answered the door and said, Did he said, ma'am, I'm, I'm here because you, because the 911 call. And she said, and she was holding Josh, he was just a little baby, and she said, well, we didn't call 911. He said, well, someone called. And she said, we, and, and John was turning different colors. <laughs> and there was a conversation, and John, did you call 911? <laughs> well, someone called 911. She, he said, well, maybe Josh, he called 911. No, Josh, he's four months old. He didn't call 911. <laughs> I, I wasn't there. Mary told me about this. And when I got home, I heard about it, and we had a little conversation. And I said, now, John, I said, now, I know you called 911, didn't you? I said, remember we told you how to call 911? It's only if there's something wrong. And... But were you just curious? And he's, well, I, I, and he, you know, he, he felt badly. And I said, okay. He said, that I did, and I'm sorry I lied. And I said, okay. I said, that's all right. I said, well, let's get in the car, because we're going to go down and talk to a policeman. <laughs> and he said, Daddy, I don't want to go talk to the policeman. I said, well, we're gonna, let's go down to the police station. Let's talk to him. Because you told me, but you need to tell him and ask his forgiveness. And he won't get mad at you, but you need to tell him, man the man, that you didn't tell him the truth. So we got in the car, and we lived in a little subdivision, you know, and they had a little police station. So we walk in there, and we ask for officers. Well, he just went off shift. Okay, well, John wanted to apologize to him because John did call 911, and, he, and the policeman said, oh, you did? And he said, well, son, you know, and John's quaking, and, you know, it was really good. It was a good effect on him. <laughs> and then... He, he, he handled it very well, and he said, well, John, I, I know you won't do it again, and thank you for coming in and telling us, and I'll be sure and tell officer such and such, and thank you for, for owning up to it. You know, this kid's three years old. And then we're, we're starting to leave, and, you know, this is just a real nice subdivision we lived in, and they had this police station, and, they, and I, as I'm leaving, I could see the three cells they had back there that had never been used. <laughs> 
And I said, hey, uh, excuse me, officer. I said, is it possible for us to take a look in those cells? And he said, well, yeah. And I kind of nodded. He goes, oh, yeah, sure, let me show you. <laughs> so I took John back there. And he said, well, just take a look around. Let me know when you're ready. And, and we're looking in these jail cells. And, Dad, and John, Josh, or John said, he goes, Dad, he said, look at that bathroom. The toilet's just right there. People can see you going to the bathroom. I said, yeah, that's what happens when you go to jail. They watch you go to the bathroom. <laughs> he, he, that, that was the worst thing he could imagine in life. Somebody watch you go to the bathroom. I said, you know, you know who gets put in here, John? He goes, no. I said, guys who, guys who lie, and they make it into a habit, and then they think they can get away with anything. And then they start stealing, and they start doing this, and they don't obey their parents. I mean, it was choice. It, it was choice. You got to take advantage of those moments. You see? A little fear goes a long way. You don't want anybody watching you when you're going to the bathroom. <laughs> that right there will change your life, man. Uh, do, do, does our will count? Do our choices count? Yeah. But let me tell you something. You say, well, how does this work? My will and God's will. Well, let me just say this. You put your card on the table, and God's card always trumps your card. God is the ultimate trump card of everything. And you don't have to know how it works. All we have to know is that he is sovereign, and he is in absolute control. Now, we got a situation going on with Joshua. And last week, we jumped ahead, because last week we got into the passage where they crossed the Jordan and they were immediately given a command to circumcise every adult male. Uh, you know, but I jumped ahead because tonight I want to go to Joshua 3. And I want to give you a snapshot of Joshua 3 because we're going to talk about the giant of the worst possible time. Now, if God is sovereign and if God is in control... Follow this here, because we're going to think. If God's in control of everything, you know, no email, he's in control of everything, but, no, he's in control of everything. If God's in, you say, what about evil? God's in control of evil. God is never the author of evil, but God uses evil. Joseph said to his brothers, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. Does God always stop evil? Could God stop evil? But he doesn't always, he didn't stop them from selling Joseph into slavery. So God could have stopped it, but he chose not to because God had a different purpose. But God has all power and God has all control. One of the things that God has all control and power over is time. Which is good to know. Psalm 31.15 says, my times are in your hand. So the length of your days is in his hand. Your conception is in his hand. If you read Psalm 139, you exist. You were conceived by the will of God. Your birth, your day of birth, is the result of the plan of God. The day of your death is the result of the plan of God. It is appointed for a man once to die, Hebrew says. And then everything between your conception and your birth all the way to your death, my times are in thy hand. So, so God is sovereign over your times, and God is sovereign over timing. Now, let me show you something very interesting in Joshua chapter 3 as we talk about the sovereignty of God over timing. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and he and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan, and they lodged there before they crossed. They'd been wandering for 40 years. 
Now it's time to finally cross the Jordan. This is a big deal. So God says, all right, go up there and camp at the Jordan at Shittim. Verse 2, at the end of three days, the officers went through the midst of the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priests carrying it, then you shall set it from your place and go after it. So here's what's going to happen. They're going to cross the Jordan River. Uh, the, the priests are going to go first. They're going to be carrying the Ark. The people are going to uh, stay. You look at verse 4. They're going to stand back from the Ark, 2,000 cubits, and they're going to cross after 40 years. So this is huge. This is a big deal. A lot of things are going to change. But note the timing. Verse 15. It says, And when those who carried the ark came into the Jordan, and the feet of the priests carrying the ark were dipped in the edge of the water. Now watch this. For the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of the harvest. That gives you a tip of what we're going to see here. Flip over to uh, chapter 4, verse 19. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the eastern edge of, of Jericho. So, so they're at Shittim, and when they cross, they camp at Gilgal. And this happened, when did this happen? On the 10th of the first month. But, but let me tell you why this is significant. Uh, the first month on their calendar was what was known as flood season. And at flood season, the Jordan River would overrun its banks. Um, at flood season, at this particular location, it's not this way now because they've gotten engineers in there and fixed it. But back then, at this location, at flood season, in the first month on their calendar, the Jordan River was a mile wide and 150 feet deep. That's what's significant about that state. The first month. It was the worst possible time to cross. They could have crossed six months earlier. It would have been fine. It's manageable. The kids can wade in the water. It's no big deal. But see, God didn't have them cross six months earlier, and he's not going to have them cross six months later. He's having them cross. And, and, and who, who, who is orchestrating this situation here? Who's giving the directions? God is. Go up there and camp, and you're going to wait three days, and then I want you to cross. He's going to have them cross at the worst possible time. So three days, they're camped out. Now, you got kids, you got grandkids. Um, are you getting any sleep? Are you able to relax during the day as you make preparations? No, you're tense. You're tight. Why? You're always looking for those kids. Where are those kids? Don't you kids go near that river. Why? Well, it's 150 feet deep, and it's a mile wide. You get in that water, and they'll be gone like that. For, I, I find it interesting that, that they're about to have a, 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 a tremendous uh, event occur in their lives. They're finally going to go and cross into the promised land. But it's the worst possible We've said this many times in here, and it's true. God works, but God works strangely. God's timing doesn't always add up to us. In fact, God's timing often doesn't add up to us. We will see God leading us. We will see God directing us. And we look around and we think to ourselves, this is the worst possible time to be doing this. Why does God do that? Well, he is orchestrating the events, and he is setting up the events, 
And, and, and ultimately what he's going to do is he's going to bring glory to his name. Forty years before, they passed through the Red Sea. And if you flip over to Exodus chapter uh, 13 and Exodus chapter 14, it's very clear that as the people are camped at the Red Sea, and, and if you read verse 17 of 13, they've just come out of Egypt, it says, Now when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the, land of the, uh, by the way of the land of the Philistines. God didn't take them the easy direction. He didn't take them right up the Mediterranean. No, God said, I want you to go out of the way and go down and camp by the Red Sea. And as they're camped by the Red Sea, God is stirring something up. If you look at 14.2, he says, Tell the, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp. He's got them camped. Tell them to camp. All right, same situation, they're camped. While they're camped, verse 3, God says to Moses, For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, They're wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them. So, so note what's happening. They're camped. They've just, come out of the, they've just come out of Egypt. They're going to the promised land. God's got them camped by the Red Sea. But while they're camped and enjoying their freedom and enjoying their liberty for the first time in 430 years, God's, stirring, God's saying to Moses, hey, what I'm going to do is I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and he's going to come after these guys. Now, God's creating a crisis for these people. See, when God's sovereign, God is sovereign over the crises that come into your life. Now, you, you, we don't often hear teaching like this. I, people, I, I'll hear people say to me, well, you know, I don't hear this too often. Well, go to a church that teaches the Bible, and then you'll hear it. God's sovereign over everything. God's sovereign over the crises that come into our life. Because he's a powerful God. These things don't happen. Hey, stuff doesn't happen to us by chance. Stuff doesn't happen to us by accident. Stuff doesn't happen to us just because we drew some bad cards. God's got a plan for our lives. God has ordained my steps. God is taking me somewhere. God's taking history somewhere. We're, we're, there, there is a flow to history. And when you read your Bible, you see where it's going. Um, it's part of the plan. God says, I want you to go and camp, and they're camped at the Red Sea. And then God says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and he's going to change his mind and say, why did I let those people go? They're the economic engine of our nation. I'm going to go get them and put them back into slavery. Now, why would God put these? So God is stirring up a crisis. Got any crisis in your life? See, if we never have any crisis, we never learn. Watch this. If we never have any crisis in our lives, we never learn. We never learn because we never need to trust God. If you're crisis-free, do you need to trust God? If, if, if your finances are exactly the way you want them, and exactly the way they are on the commercials on TV, you, you know what I'm saying? Here's, here's, here's retirement. Here's a guy that's 85 years old, and he looks like he's 23. And he and his wife have married for 70 years, and she looks like she's 18. And they got all the money in the world, and they got no wrinkles, and they're in perfect health, and they're lean, and they're, you know, I mean, it's good. It's just good. And it's a crock. <laughs> and they got all the money, and their kids are all doing exactly what they want their kids to do. 
And they made every right financial move. They made no blunders along the way. Everything is exactly the way it should be. It didn't happen that way. And God doesn't, I'll tell you what, he's sure not going to let that happen to you. Is he? No, because you know why he will not allow that to happen to you? Because he wants you to trust him. And if you've got all the money and you've got, and you were smart and you saw this market downturn and you shorted and you did this and you stole funds and you did all this stuff. I don't know what you did. But let's say you're real slick. And you, you, you saw this coming and you beat it. Well, let me tell you something. You're going to deal with something else. There's always going to be an area in your life where you're going to have to trust him and I'm going to have to trust him. Why would God take people and set them up for crisis? Well, three times in this passage, God said, verse 4, God says, I'll harden Pharaoh's heart. And I'll put this in because Pharaoh had hardened his own heart. I'll, I'll harden Pharaoh's heart. He will chase after them. Look at this. And I will be honored. That's why God was bringing about a crisis. Look at verse uh, 17. I'll harden the hearts of the Egyptians. They will go in after them. And I will be honored. Verse 18. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored. You know why God puts us in crisis? And there's no escape and there's no way out? Because God's name is going to be honored. It's one of the giants that we face in the Christian life. Talking with this friend, actually on the way over here tonight, and he used a great illustration, the one who's having trouble with, with the teenager. He, he said, I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm standing, I've been standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon enjoying the view, and it gave way, and it collapsed, and I grabbed a limb on the way down, and, and I, I'm just hanging on by this limb. And I can't get a foothold. I've lost all my wisdom. You ever been there? Sure you have. I, and the thing is, they don't know what to do next. That's where some of you guys are. You're in a situation, and you don't know what to do next. Well, how did you get here? How did you get in this position? Well, God's sovereign over your life. And, and usually these things come at the very worst possible time. It was interesting to me, because we've been talking about it's kind of a, it's, it's a pretty serious situation. And, and sometimes with teenagers, when they get this obstinate and they get this um, difficult, uh, they can't stay in a home. And they got to go somewhere else. And there are some Christian ministries that take kids like this and have had some phenomenal uh, results. But someone's going to be breathing down that kid's neck 24-7 for about 8, 9, 10 months because they're so hard-hearted. Well, those kind of deals cost money. And as he said to me, he said, well, you know, I checked this place out, and my business is just taking a hit. Six months ago, I could have handled it. But see, I can't. See, this came at the worst possible time. The worst possible. See, a lot of times, it's not only the giant that comes, but the giant comes at the worst possible time. Uh, let's go back to the people uh, in Joshua chapter 3 and 4. There, God says, I want you to go camp by the Jordan at Shittim, and in three days you're going to go. Now, now think about this. In three days they're going to cross. For three days they stared at that river. For three days they thought about everything that could go wrong. Don't you think? 
I mean, what would you be doing? See, oftentimes, God puts us in a situation, and does he immediately uh, uh, eliminate the hardship? No, he lets us look at it, stare at it, ponder it, and lets our imaginations go crazy. If we don't think, you've got to think. And when you're facing a giant, you've got to think. Think about what? Think about the giant. Think about what the giant could do. Think about what could happen. The kids could be swept away. Think about, oh, if this goes wrong or this, and then if that happens, what's going to happen here? Our imaginations are amazing, are they not? They can just take off. They can go crazy. But what you have to do is you have to take, take a step back, and you have to think. Think about what? Think about your God who is in control of every giant. At a certain point in your Christian life, when you encounter a giant and you encounter a crisis, at a certain point, and initially you're stunned and you're shocked and you're freaked out and all that, okay. But at a point, you got to grab yourself. And you got to say, wait a minute. you got to put yourself up against the wall. Don't you love it in movies when some guy's panicked and he's out of control and his buddy just slaps him in the face? And the guy goes, oh, thanks. I, I needed that. Well, sometimes you got to do that to yourself. Because you're in a situation, and the giant's there, and it's the worst possible time, and, and you got to put yourself up against the wall, and you got hey, what are you doing? Think, hey, think about what's going on here. Why am I here? Who's in charge? What is happening here? Well, you know what? My faith is going to be tested. That's what's going on. I don't have a clue how to get through this. This is so far beyond me. Well, that's where you need a sovereign God. Uh, I remember talking with some friends who had uh, planned very carefully over the years and uh, been very wise, and they, they had planned to retire at a certain point for the specific purpose of going into a particular ministry. And they'd been very careful, and, and they had really done an exemplary job because they felt like God was calling them to do this particular ministry work. And, and they, the day came, and they retired, and uh, they... They weren't into it six weeks, and the wife came down with a very aggressive type of camp, and everything changed. Everything. See, that's, that wasn't the plan. That wasn't the plan at all. This is the worst possible time. For the first time in our lives, we're freed up to do what we feel like we're called to do, that you've called us to do, Lord, and it's, it's, it's the worst possible time. Flip over to John chapter 11, if you would. I'm going to show you the sovereignty of God over timing from a different perspective. John chapter 11, we have the uh, well-known account of Lazarus. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, um, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, we know what happened. 
He says, this sickness is not to end in death. Did a death occur? Yes, it did. But see, Jesus said it's not to end in death, although death did occur, but he says, for the glory of God. See, that's just like back in Exodus, God saying, so that my name might be on. You got a crisis going on. You're about to, Lazarus is sick. That's a crisis. Okay? You got physical issues? That's a crisis. Uh, John chapter 9, man uh, blind from birth. Who sinned, his parents or the man? Neither. But that the works of God might be displayed in him, God would glorify. You know, watch this. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two, do- two days longer in the place where he was. Now that's interesting. I mean, I find it. Because normally you'd find out Lazarus is sick. They're very, he's very close to the family. Let's go see Lazarus. Let's go see what I can do. Let's so what does Jesus do? He purposefully stays away. Sometimes in our lives, we're in a crisis, and it seems like God is staying away. There are times when we're in crisis, and it seems like God withdraws from us. And you know why it seems that way? Because he's withdrawn on purpose. Now, his presence is still with you. But, but you're looking for an answer. You're looking for a response. And you know what? You're not getting it. And you're praying, Lord, I, I'm desperate. Lord, I need to hear from you. Lord, I need direction. And you know what? It's like there's nothing. And you know why it seemed like there's nothing? Because there's nothing. He is purposefully, does he do this all the time? No, but sometimes he does it. And what happens is you're in crisis, and instead of him coming to your immediate aid, what he does is he stays away. It's what Jesus did here. He did it on purpose. Uh, verse 11, just to move the story along. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. But I am glad, now watch this, watch this. But I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. It, it, was, it was to their advantage that he was not there. Now watch this. Um, verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. See, there was a reason to the delay. There was a reason for the waiting. There was a reason for the timing. Now, I want you to notice the concern, though, that that comes up. Martha shows up, verse 20. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Watch this. Mary then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Do you see the question? You see the issue in her heart? It's an issue of timing. If you had been here, did Jesus know there was a problem? Yes. Did Jesus come immediately? No. But if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Jesus stayed away on purpose so that there would be no question that he was dead. 
Because what was Jesus about to do? He's going to raise him from the dead. And, and on purpose, Jesus stayed away so that when he actually did the miracle and Lazarus comes out of the tomb and comes back from death, that nobody could question the validity of the miracle. CSI Jerusalem can't undercut it because the forensic evidence is clear. He was dead. The sucker was dead as a doornail. Do you see that there was a reason for the withdrawal? Yes, there is. You know, guys, in your situation, in my situation, there are 10 million things going on that we don't know anything about. And God knows every one of them, doesn't he? See, to us, the very best thing is for Jesus to come and fix it, but he doesn't come and fix it. There's a reason he hasn't come and fixed it. Yet. You see her question, though, about time? The immediate question, she questions the timing. If you had been here, you wouldn't have died. So this is Martha. Then go to verse uh, uh, 32. Now we're going to see Mary. She comes out of the house. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The same issue about the timing of God showing up for the situation. We're always struggling with the timing of God. We're always struggling with, with the events of our lives. This couldn't have happened at a worse time. Actually, when it happens at the worst time, what it means for someone that's not in it and emotionally in it and, you know, your whole life's in it, but for someone who's just looking at it, see, it very well could mean when it's the worst possible time, what's happening here is God is getting ready to show His glory. God's getting ready to show you something about His greatness that you haven't seen before. That's what was happening here. And we know what happened. He was dead as dead could be. And Jesus spoke the words, Lazarus, come forth. And he did. And God's name was glorified and God's name was honored. Let's go back to Joshua chapter 4. Worst possible time, they're going to cross after 40 years. Watch, watch what happens. And, 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 and watch the timing of God here. Because we, we know what happens. We know the story, but they didn't know the story. They're experiencing it. Let's go back to verse 14 of Joshua 3. So when the people set out from their tents, this is after three days, to cross the Jordan, which the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant with, uh, before the people, and when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan, and the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of the harvest, the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap a great distance away at Adam. What happened? You got a mile wide. You got 150 feet deep. The priests step in to the water. They touch the water. What happens? Just like Red Sea. Once again, God rolls it back. That bed is not muddy. It's instantaneously dry. And the priests go out. They stand in the middle. They hold the ark. And two million men, women, and children cross while God holds the waters, and they cross into the promised land. 
And then something very interesting happened. Oh, by the way, does that honor God's name? I mean, hey, 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 guys, you know what? Just think for a minute what it would have been like to have been. Really. Would that not have been something? Once you got across? How'd you like to be a priest? How'd you like to be a priest? The priest had to stand out in the middle. Actually, it was the priest's wives that stood out in the middle. <laughs> they ordained the women and let them take the leadership. I just thought I'd throw that in and turn the knife. Anyway, no, the men stood in the middle of the river. You see? And that water, what if that water comes crashing in? Well, you're, hey man, you're history. You know? But it didn't happen. Now, note what happens here. This is very significant. Verse, uh, chapter 4. When all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves 12 men from the people, one man from each tribe. What was the occasion of the last time we've ever heard this? Numbers 13, 40 years before, take 12 men, one from each tribe, those were the spies who blew it. It's like God says, all right, we're going to try this one more time. Let's see if we can get it right, boys. Okay. Yeah. Have you ever noticed that, that God will bring an experience in your life, and perhaps you don't trust him, and you know, you just, okay. And then down the road, it comes up again. I, I, I've seen that in my life. All right, let's see, Steve, if we can get this right. I want you to trust me here. And here's the thing about God. You might as well just, just go ahead and trust him. Because you don't want to go to summer school on this deal. Just go ahead. Hey, go ahead and obey him and trust him. All right? Now watch this. Uh, take for yourselves 12 men from the people, one man from each tribe. Command them, saying, take up for yourselves 12 stones from here out of the middle of the Jordan. Uh, the, you know, the water's backed up. I want you to take 12 stones from the middle of the river and carry them over with you and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. So Joshua called the 12 men whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross again to the ark of the Lord your God in the middle of the Jordan, and each of you shall take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Let this, now watch this, let this be a sign among you, so that when your children ask later, what do these stones mean to you? You shall say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. Uh, There are actually two piles of stones. We won't read the whole text. They did this twice. They set up 12 stones on the other side where they crossed, where they camped, and there was a pile of 12 stones. Then they put another 12 stones in the middle of the river. And then when the river came back, there was this pile of stones. And then, so you had two piles of stones. Now, what was the purpose of the pile of stones? The purpose of the pile of stones is very, very clear. So the kids are out there on the side of the river playing soccer or whatever they're doing or playing baseball, and the kids come in for dinner, and, they, and, the, and the little boy says, Hey, Daddy, I was out there playing. What, what, are, what, are, what, are, those 12, what are those stones out there for? Now, what's the purpose? Look at verse 
20, these, uh, 12, those 12 stones which they had taken from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. He said to the sons of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, where are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. In other words, the whole purpose of the stones was that the kids would see the 12 stones stacked up, and they go, hey, Dad, what's the deal with those 12 stones? The story is told of a little boy was at church, downtown church, with his mom and dad, and in the, in the foyer was a very nice, uh, you know, memorial to the men who had given their lives in World War II, old downtown church. The little boy is with his parents, and they're walking in, and they go to church, and they come out, and he asked his dad, he said, Dad, what, what's that there? And he said, well, that's a memorial for the, for the men who died in the service. And the little boy said, the morning service or the evening service? <laughs> little church joke there, guys. Uh, if you grew up in church, you'll appreciate that. Because you died many a death in the morning service, and then back in the evening service, and then the Wednesday night service. But aren't you glad you had folks that took you to church? And you got the word of God early. Anyway. So they set up the 12 stones. Why? So that when your children ask. And, and, and see, you're going to tell them the story. And you're going to tell them a story, and part of the story is, is that, you see, our God had us cross, but we just didn't cross at any time. We crossed at the worst possible time. And here's what God did. Certain things in our lives, you see, God sets up certain events in our lives that come about at the worst possible time so that when he intervenes, he gets the glory, and we tell our children, and they know he's the living God, and then they tell their children. I, I, Mary asked me this afternoon, she said, what are you teaching on? And I told her. And she said, you got to tell them the story, Steve. And I said, I've already told them the story. She said, how long ago did you tell them the story? I said, I don't know. She said, tell it to them again, because some of them haven't heard it. I said, well, let me think about it. Um, how many of you guys have heard the story? You say, what story? See, you don't know. <laughs> Few of you know where I'm going. Um, I, I, I'll tell you a little story. That is a memorial stone. Be because you see, guys, there's a principle here. When, when, when you're walking with Christ, are you going to face giants? Yeah, but let me tell you something. When God slays a giant... Your kids need to know about it at the appropriate time. When God comes through for you, they need to know about it. Now, if they're three or four, obviously, you know, you share it when they are emotionally capable of handling it and understanding it. But, but children need to know that this is not just another belief system. They need to know that all religions are not the same. They need to know that we're not after unity, just for unity's sake. They need to know that we're not interested in being ecumenical with all religions and all faiths, because there's one Lord, and there's one faith, and there's one baptism. And there's one God who is the one true God. So when you fight the giants and God delivers in some way, shape, or form, a memorial stone needs to be set up so that the glory of God can be given to the children and that they will know the story and that they can then pass it on. Um, 
coming up on 11 years ago, we lived in Coppell and just, you know, we were there and everything was fine, but we were, we were looking to move further out because our kids at that time were involved up at Denton, at Denton Bible Church, and we were driving 45 minutes, three, four times a week, and it was getting crazy, and we thought, let's see if we can get closer to Denton. And so we looked for six months. We didn't find anything. And on a particular afternoon, I, I was out looking around, and this is after six months of just being just frustrated. Nothing was happening. Nothing was working. We're just looking to get an acre or two. And uh, as I'm out in this particular area, I thought of some people that lived not too far from there, uh, the Hickerson family, and who went to Denton Bible Church. And they had a 20-acre property, and they always had a couple from Dallas Seminary that lived in what was called the barn house, the old converted barn they turned into a two-bedroom, two-bath house. And they always had a couple from Dallas Seminary, and they'd live there in exchange for rent and take care of the grass and all that kind of thing. Well, the couple that had lived there the last four years, this couple we had known before they'd come to seminary, and when Mary and I go out of town, they'd watch our kids. Well, they had just, Lamar had recently just graduated, and I needed to contact him. I thought, I'm out looking for property. I'll go, I just drive in there and get the phone number for Lamar because I need to call him. So I drive in. And uh, long, windy driveway down a hill, you know, kind of in the middle of no You never see the house from the street. So I walk up to the door, and Mrs. Hickerson comes to the door, and she says, hey, Steve, what's up? And I said, hey, I'm, uh, uh, I'm trying to get a hold of Lamar. Have you got his number? She said, sure, let me get it for you. So I'm standing on the front door. She goes up to the kitchen, comes back with the address book, gives me the number, and I said, thank you very much. That's great. She says, what are you doing out here? And I said, oh, I'm just driving around looking at property. And it was like I hit her in the face with a two-by-four. I mean, the Bible would say her countenance changed. I, I, I really, and, and she just, I said, oh, I'm just driving around looking for property. And she literally just, she, she, she just changed. And I thought, my gosh, what did I say to this lady? And she, she was sort of stunned, and she was silent for a minute, and she said, you're driving around looking for property. I said, yeah. And she said, really? And I said, yeah. And she said, you ought to buy this place. And I laughed out loud. <laughs> like Sarah in the Old Testament laughed out loud. <laughs> I literally laughed out loud, and I said, excuse me, I didn't mean to be rude, but that's just, um, I said, I didn't know the place was for sale. I didn't see a sign out front. She said, we never put a sign out front. God gave us this place, and we've raised our family here, and we've used this place for ministry for 20 years, but our daughter was just married, and we've been praying for three years. When she got married, that would be the indicator that we were going to move to East Texas and build a new retreat center. I said, oh, well, that's really interesting. And she said, well, we've been praying for three years that God would send the right family here. We'd never put a sign up for sale. But we've been praying that God would send the right family. And I said, well, that, well, I'm sure he'll do it. She said, well, maybe it's you. I said, it's not me. <laughs> she said, well, how do you know that? I said, well, what do you have here? And she said, well, we've got 20 acres. And I said, and you got the main house? And then you got what else? She said, well, we have the little barn house, and we have the pool house. I said, that's why it's not me. <laughs> because I know I'm looking for one or two acres, and I know what one or two acres cost out here. She said, yeah, but you don't understand. We're not looking for the right price. We're looking for the right people. And I said, well, I'm sure you'll find them. 
and for 20 minutes, and I didn't know her all that well. We'd met maybe on two or three occasions. She tried to convince me that we ought to consider buying this property. And I was trying to be polite and kind and demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> but I thought, this, this, uh, and she was kind of persistent. She was nice, but she was persistent. And she's trying to, you could use this for this, and you, we use it for different people who come in and missionaries, and they stay here, and, and we got a full calendar, and, you know, almost every week of the year, there's somebody here on the property, and da-da-da, and I'm saying, well, that's great, that's wonderful. Then she said, maybe it's you. I said, it's not me. I said, I'm just saying it's not me. It's not even in the ball. She said, after about 20, 30 minutes, I, I drove out, grateful that I got out. <laughs> No, I'm, I'm exaggerating. But it was, it was very unusual. It was crazy. It was nuts. Um, it's a very rustic place. It's very old. The main house was a settler's home built in 1900, two rooms. And Dave was going to build a new house on the side of the hill, but she got pregnant, and so he just added the bedroom. Then he added another bedroom, and then he added another bedroom. So the house was built in about 1900. So everything's real rustic, and it's in a little valley, and there's a little creek coming through. I mean, it's really, it's a beautiful little property. I'm walking out, and I think, this is nuts. I didn't even tell Mary about it. About three nights later, I had dinner. Mary and Rachel are doing the dishes, and I'm standing there watching them, which is what I usually do. <laughs> I'm just being honest with you. I don't want to rob them of the joy <laughs> of serving God. So I'm watching them. We're talking. And, uh, I, and, I, I, and I said, you know, the funniest thing happened. I, I, was up, I went by the Hickersons the other day. And, you know, my kids would spend a lot of time up there because when Lamar and Jennifer would take care of them, they'd be at our house and they'd go up to the, the place and, you know, hang out. And Anyway, and I'm telling her, I said, I went by the Hickersons, you know, get Lamar's phone number, and I start telling her this. And, and she, she, uh, she was listening to me, and I got telling the story, and I said, that was just really something. And she said, Steve, I wonder if God's in that. I said, no, he's not in that. <laughs> I said, that's ridiculous. I don't know, an hour or two later, my mom calls from California, you know, they were going to come out in a few weeks. And, you know, she knew we were looking around. She we were just talking. She said, hey, have you found anything yet? I said, no. I said, the funniest thing happened, I was just telling Mary about it. So I told her the story. My mom was quiet. She said, Steve, I wonder if the Lord's in that. I said, no, Mom. I mean, Mary, what do you mean is God in that? He's not in that. And I said, Mary said the same thing. I mean, that's, that's nuts. That's ridiculous. It's crazy. Um, a few days later, Mary brought it up again. She said, Steve, I wonder if you ought to check that out. And I said, you know, Mary, that's just nuts. What will we do? What? I've almost got this. We had a little Fox and Jacobs play. I almost have this place paid off. What? And, and, and yeah, it's worth here, and they give it to us here, but I'd have to take out more money. I don't want to do that. She said, maybe you ought to talk to some guys and get some. I said, okay. And I have a friend that's pretty savvy and pretty sharp, and I'm talking to him. We're on a plane, and I mentioned it to him, and this guy's got a lot of spiritualism. He's very sharp financially. And I knew he'd say, that's idiotic. I tell him a story, and he looked at me, and he said, I wonder if God's in that, Steve. <laughs> That happened to me 11 different times. People I went to for counsel. The Bible says in an abundance of counselors are victory. I got defeated. 
I kept looking for somebody to tell me. I, I'm, on, I'm in California speaking somewhere. I'm getting on a plane to go to Orange County. I, I'm getting on the flight. A guy goes, hey, Steve, at the gate, I turn. It's a guy that used to be in my church in California. Hadn't seen him in years. Big-time real estate attorney in San Francisco. We wind up sitting together. And as we're talking, I said, what are you doing? He said, I said, what are you going? He goes, I'm going down to L.A. My son's buying his first house, so I'm going to help him. And I thought, hey, I'll talk to this guy. I mean, he's an attorney. He's a deal killer. He'll kill this thing. <laughs> and so I told him the stuff. And once again, Norm's a great guy, but he's, he's very conservative. I said, Norm, can I run you something by? I told him the whole story, and we're sitting there, and we're just landing in Orange County. He looked at me, he says, you know, Steve, I, I, don't see any, uh, I don't see any problem with this. He said, you think the Lord might be in this? And I said, well, I'm starting to think that. <laughs> oh, I need to, so, so we thought, well, let's test the waters. Let's test the waters. Let's put our foot in the water with the ark on the, you ever test the waters? It was a lousy time to sell a house. In two weeks, we had two full-priced offers. Uh, we moved in there 11 years ago uh, in about three weeks. I got to tell you something interesting. The night before we closed, we had dinner with the Hickersons, and we were talking. And Mrs. Hickerson said, Steve, I got to tell you something that you don't know. The, uh, the day you came, and I came on kind of strong about the property, and I said, yeah. She said, what you don't know is this. The week before, the reality of moving and leaving hit me, because we'd raised our kids here. We had all these great memories. And we felt that it was the Lord's direction, but I, I, I needed to know for sure, so I took a day to pray. Turned off the phones, just prayed and sought the Lord and read the Scripture. And as that was coming to a conclusion that day of prayer, I asked the Lord to do something for me because my faith was weak. And I said, Lord, would you do this for me if this is what you have for us to sell this and move? Would you, would you let me know by whoever it is that you have for this property, would you have them come to the front door and tell me that they're looking for property? And seven days later, you showed up. That's why. You see, that's why. I was the way I was. So if you come by our place and you drive up front, you're going to see 12 stones stacked up out by the gate. And there's a little sign that says 12 stones ranch. And then if you come in and you go down by the creek, there's another pile of stones, and there's another little sign that says 12 stones ranch. i got to tell you, the first year I was there, it's a great place. And we've had all kinds of people come in and kids that don't have a place to stay and all this stuff and we just let them stay and anyway it's nothing we really envisioned but it's something the Lord's given to us um, and we'll have people say what are those what's 12 stones and we tell them the story we tell them the story can I tell you one other piece to the story the first year I fought off depression while I was there big time you know why I fought off depression because I was overwhelmed by 20 acres I mean, I, I couldn't even mow my backyard in Coppell. <laughs> and I had 20 acres, and I was absolutely overwhelmed. I was absolutely overwhelmed. 
how do you take care? How do you take care of this? How do you maintain it? You know, we were trying to save money for retirement, but every time we try to do that, something would break down and be a major. It all hasn't been rosy. It's been great, but I'm going to tell you, there have been some struggles. And, and I remember that first year, I'd walk down by that barn, and I'd say, God, I don't need 20 acres. Why would you get, I don't get this. I don't get this. I, don't, I mean, I'm glad to be here, and everybody loves it, but i got to pay for it. <laughs> everybody loves it. Everybody's happy. And it's a great place, and I'm glad to be here, but I'm stressing a little bit. Um, and it kind of changed things. It was a right move, but it also became... There's a lot of repairs, and so some financial plans were changed that kind of threw me. I'm just being honest with you guys. And I always wondered, why do we need a place this big? What's... And I had, a, I had had a plan, a financial plan, a retirement plan, and I kept looking at it, and I couldn't do with that what I wanted to do anyway. Because I was supposed to have this much saved by the time I hit 59 years old. Can I tell you something interesting? I got an email last Friday. And last Friday, the email said, um, the one gas well that we were going to originally do up the street that turned into three gas wells, actually, we're going to do eight gas wells. And I talked to the guy, and I said, can you give me an estimate of what that comes out to? And the guy said, well, here's the estimate. And then I went into the... uh, um, closet, and I pulled out that financial plan from years ago, how much I was supposed to save by the time I hit 59, and it's four times greater. So you know why I share that with you? To give honor to his name. That's why. I don't know if you've got 12 stones anywhere, but when God does something great for you, get a couple of stones. Doesn't have to be little stones, but do when God does something great in your marriage, don't forget about it. Mark it. When God does something great in your life, when God makes a way with it, mark it and tell your kids about it. You know why I share that with you guys? Because I'm telling you guys, we all see it. Right now, it's very unstable economically. You know why I share that with you? I'm telling you God makes a way. And I'm telling you God is faithful. And does that not give glory and honor to his name? He'll do that for me. He'll bring glory to his name through your life and your family. I hope we enjoy the holy days that are coming up. You know, I've decided I'm going to do this Christmas. The first time somebody says to me, happy holidays. <laughs> now, I decided this today. You know what I'm going to say to them? I'm going to say, happy holy days. And then I'll just see what they say. Thanksgiving is a holy day. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being my provider. Christmas, thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming. Being born of a virgin, being my Messiah, my Savior. These are holy days. And in the midst of all of this up and down, may we enjoy his peace because he is our sovereign keeper and provider. So we praise you, Lord Jesus, and we thank you, Father, and we're grateful for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
You simply want us to trust you even at the worst possible time. I pray for my friends and their situation with their son. And right now, they don't know what to do next. Give them the next step so that your name may be honored. And save this boy, I pray. For the guys in here that are struggling with marriages, save that marriage so that your name might be honored. For the guys that are trusting you for finances, show them their, your greatness so that your name would be honored. For the families struggling with health issues that they never saw coming, may your name be honored. We pray in Jesus' name.